ever known. He just loved his mom, put his own life on hold to take care of his mom for many, many years. And so the funeral, I think, is planned for um, Tuesday morning, uh, 10 o'clock at Hennessy's, the funeral home over by the mall in Trumbull. Well, uh, how often has it happened to you <clears throat> that you've gotten to a place in your life where um, your faith was being challenged? Has that ever happened to you? And, uh, you know, when you kind of add things up and you weigh things, you're like, you know, uh, you're tempted maybe to uh, give up on your faith. You're tempted because things just don't add up. And uh, when you think about this, you know, um, if God loves me so much, well, then why is this happening in my life? Why this accident in my life? Why this diagnosis of my health? Why this financial reversal? Why didn't I get the job? You know, why did I get rejected by my own family or by my good friend? If God loves me so much, why do these things happen to me? You know, on vacation, Barb and I... Uh, we sort of force each other to come up with um, goals for the coming year. We sort of sit on the beach and, uh, you know, we start kind of uh, unpacking the layers of our life. And we kind of ask the question, you know, what do you think God wants to have happen in our spiritual lives next year? And we try to come up with some goals. What do you think God wants to have happen in our relational lives, in our marriage? And Barb always has a long list there of what I need to do about that, you know, kind of thing. But in our relational lives with our kids, what, what do you think? What are some goals? What does God want to have? What are our financial goals? Uh, what should we be saving toward retirement? What should we be giving to the Lord? What should we you know, be uh, fixing the house with? And all the rest of the whole financial piece. And, uh, and we've kind of got a new category the last couple of years. What about our health? What are we going to do to um, you know, stay healthy and stay on our feet and, and those kinds of things. And so we try to come up with these um, goals, these career goals, health goals, financial goals. And uh, often, to be honest, some of the same goals resurface the next year. And then we think to ourselves, especially me, I'm like, well, what's the use of making goals? Because, you know, we had these goals for the last three years. And look, here we are on the beach again, and uh, we're, we're trying to re-up this goal. And so there's a tension that begins to develop between why bother setting goals and do we have enough faith to believe that God really does want to change different aspects of our lives? And so we wrestle with that, and we, we force, that's why I say we force each other to come up with a list of goals. And so our faith mentor this morning is um, a man by the name of Gideon, and I think he's especially helpful when you're discouraged because the circumstances of your life are not matching up with what perhaps you thought uh, was going to be the result of your faith. And so we read about him in Hebrews chapter 11, where we've uh, been this summer. And uh, in verse 32, it's kind of a different section now. You know, the first part of uh, Hebrews 11 talked about a number of different faith mentors and kind of told their story. Well, here in verse 32, we just get a list. The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, you know, I don't have time to uh, explain all of this. So he says in verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead from resurrection. And then there's a switch here. Sometimes we think that, you know, when we're believers and we put our faith in God, that we're just going to win all the time. But notice what happens next here. Some of these people were tortured. 
Some of these people were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised in this lifetime. But instead, verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This was all before Christ came. And that God had provided something that is yet to come. And sometimes when we live a life of faith, all of those, what we would consider negative things, are uh, not only a part of it, but actually um, they're uh, the main description of what happens when we live uh, by faith. And so Gideon is at the head of this list of these people who are simply mentioned, but not really elaborated on, except in general. And so Gideon's story is back in the book of Judges. If you go all the way back, if you want to follow along in the Bibles, uh, there in the seats, it's page like 200, uh, is the book of Judges, the seventh uh, book uh, in the Bible, the book of Judges. <clears throat> and that's where we find Gideon's story. And I would tell you that um, the book of Judges, I think, is one of the saddest books in the entire Bible. Uh, when you study the book of Judges, you uh, are exposed to the reality of uh, the essence of human nature. I think um, that the best description of human nature is in the very last verse of the book of Judges, which simply says this, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Not in God's eyes, but in their own eyes. And I would say if you wondered, if you said, what's wrong with our world today? I would tell you that's a great summary statement. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, not in God's eyes. And the more we deal God out of our culture and out of our lives, the more we think we're right in what we do. To the point where today, I think in our culture, it's pretty easy to see that what used to be wrong is now right, and what used to be right is now wrong. Right? And uh, this is what was happening in the time of the judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I believe that's a great summary statement of kind of the way uh, what's wrong with our world. Not in God's eyes, but in our own eyes. And Judges uh, was written about a thousand years before Jesus came. And it describes a period of about 325 years when Israel was already out of Egypt, Israel was done wandering around in the desert, and Israel was in the promised land. And uh, so if you can get a sense of that, uh, about 325 years of that, uh, but it was the next generation. You remember the generation that left Egypt and saw all the miracles? They all died off in the wilderness. So now we got the next generation, and that's the generation that moves into the promised land. And one of the things about the next generation, that's uh, probably true about every generation, uh, is that the next generation you know, didn't remember all that God had done. And so the next generation, instead of taking God literally and taking him at his word, uh, they didn't get rid of all the people that were in the promised land. God told them, get rid of all those people, move them out. But they didn't do that. 
um, they allowed them to stay there, and so there were these pockets of resistance in the promised land. There were enemies within the boundaries of of the promised land. And so the book of Judges is really all about how God used these people to discipline his own people and to wake them up to their reality. And then he raises up these so-called judges who were to conquer the enemy, defeat them, get rid of them, and restore uh, God's people back to a relationship with him. And so really there's 12 different judges that are talked about uh, through the book of Judges. And in Judges, the people, you know, are no sooner into the promised land, and they're turning away from God. They're doing what God said not to do, and they're not doing what God said to do. Uh, They refuse to live by faith. And so a couple of uh, verses, just to give you a flavor, in chapter 2, verse uh, 6 and 7 of the book of uh, Judges, when Joshua, you know, Joshua was who led them into the promised land. So when Joshua dismissed the people, they get into the promised land, he tells the people where they're all going to go, uh, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So they all go to the allotted areas. Uh, verse 7, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at 110. They buried him, verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Shame on them. They didn't pay attention to the next generation coming through. They didn't get excited about the youth. They didn't think it was important to invest their lives in the young people, the next generation that was coming through. And so the next generation forgot the Lord. And uh, look what it says, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals. And they uh, abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods uh, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals. And God got mad. And this is a cycle that just keeps in judges. Uh, if you read the whole thing, sit down and read the whole thing through, you'll see this is just a cycle that uh, continues. And there are two like, major themes to the book of Judges that just keep repeating themselves. On the one hand, uh, really the first theme, it seems to me, that bubbles up from the book of Judges is how sick the human heart really is. How sad the human heart really is. Uh, It's full of stubbornness and rebellion and ingratitude and foolishness against God. And so, you know, in chapter 3 and verses um, 4 to 6, here's, you know, you say, well, why didn't they just drive the people out? Listen to this. They They were for the testing of Israel. God left the people in there to test Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And here's the deal. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. They began to intermarry, and they began to go south because they began to embrace the gods of the people that were left there in the land of Canaan. And how often does this happen? And how sad when this does happen. 
And how significant that all the way in the New Testament we're told, listen, if you're a believer, don't ever marry an unbeliever. Because why? Because you'll have absolutely nothing in common. Your entire perspective on every aspect of your life will be different. And your life will be a nightmare. And that's what happened way back here in the book of Judges. They were attracted to the women, and they gave the women and so forth. Uh, their women to the, the men, and they intermarried, and then they were worshiping their gods. And so, so the first theme, it's so sad that God's people, you know, the very first thing that God said when he gave the Ten Commandments, don't have any other gods before me. Don't put anything before me. God first, right? First thing that people do, the next generation, when they're, you know, there's something more important to me than God. And so, and the second theme Uh, that runs through Judges, that recurs over and over again, is um, the patience and the long-suffering love of God. I mean, this cycle just repeats itself seven times in in the book of Judges specifically. And uh, God, you know, his grace, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his people, his willingness to forgive. I think there's no other book in the entire Bible that brings out the contrast between the failure of people and the faithfulness of God, like the book of Judges. You would think people would learn. You would think people would get it. But they don't. And there's this cycle. In chapter 2, in verse uh, 16, we read kind of how this cycle went. Uh, Verse 16 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved the people out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the people's groaning because uh, those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving, bowing down to them. They didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so the anger of the Lord, you know, and so on. Seven times there's this cycle in the book of Judges. Seven times um, the people reject God. Seven times God lets the foreign people uh, come against his people. And seven times the people cry out to God. And seven times uh, God delivers them when they cry out to him uh, through these different judges. And so our mentor this morning, Gideon, in Judges chapter 6, is one of these judges. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of uh, Gideon, but in Gideon's day, it was the Midianites uh, who were uh, creating havoc in, uh, God, among God's people. And uh, the Midianites were then used by God to wake up the Israelites uh, to their sinfulness. In chapter 6 and verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, just go back one verse. It says, you know, uh, Deborah was the judge right before this in chapter 5. The very last statement, the land had rest for 40 years. 40 years is like a generation, right? 40 years. So Deborah comes along. She's the judge. Everything's cool. 40 years. Then she dies. The people of Israel do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gives them into the hand of Midian uh, seven years. And so the Midianites uh, were a little bit different than some of the other groups because the Midianites were from outside uh, the borders of Israel. 
Uh, they were down by the Dead Sea. The Midianites were nomads, so they were always moving around. They were always on the move. And, uh, but they basically hung out to the east of the Dead Sea, so southern part of Israel, east of the Dead Sea, where uh, Jordan and Iraq uh, are today. And uh, they were nomads, like I said. And so uh, they would come across the Jordan, and they would raid Israel at unexpected times, and they would take whatever they wanted, and then they would destroy everything else. Look at verse 2. It says, the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock, their tents. They would come like locusts in number, uh, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help from the Lord. That's pretty sad, right? These are God's people living in holes in the ground like animals, digging out caves and, and uh, finding places to hide because of the Midianites. And so just imagine the scene here. God's chosen people living in holes of the ground, scared to death. And the Bible says uh, there, uh, the people were brought very low, very low. Uh, I don't know if you can identify with them, but, uh, you know, have you ever been in a spot in your life where you feel like all you're doing is trying to survive? All you're doing is trying to, all you're doing is trying to get through one day at a time. And uh, all the best you can do is just, you know, uh, survive. And uh, I think that's kind of where the people were at. And so um, uh, God sends a prophet, verses 7 to 10. Um, and uh, God says through the prophet, the people of Israel crying out to God. And God says through the prophet, listen, the reason that you're in this mess is not because I don't love you, but it's because you won't listen to me. You won't trust me. You won't do what I tell you. You, you keep me from being able to bless you, which I want to do. And so the, the prophet uh, speaks, the, he's, he's unnamed. Um, the very last verse, verse 10 says, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, uh, but you have not obeyed my voice. You haven't paid attention to me. You haven't put me first. You don't trust me and so forth. And, so, uh, and then in um, verse 11, uh, we begin uh, our story with Gideon. And this is kind of cool. Uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the uh, tabernacle at Oprah, uh, which belonged to Joaz, who was the father of Gideon. And Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So here's the picture of Gideon, right? He's this guy, and he's trying to beat out some wheat, trying to hide, you know, some flour so that he can eat and survive the next raid from the Midianites. Right? Pretty sad picture. You ever feel like that? Can you identify with Gideon? where, you know, all you're doing is just uh, trying to survive. And uh, when you think about this, um, I, I just get a real kick out of this because the next verse says this, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I'm like, time out here. Wait a minute. That's not my picture of Gideon. Mighty man of valor? Valor means bravery or strength, you know, and warrior, oh, mighty man of valor. When we were on vacation, we were able to um, uh, 
go to church where we heard uh, a retired general of the army, uh, Boinkin, uh, who was with the special forces, and he described these different missions that his team was sent on and so on, and, and uh, how dependent he was on the Lord. And, and you know, he had this uh, guy who was training him all the way through who hated him because he was a Christian, and then uh, for two years this went on, and then they were on a mission together or something, and the guy is like, do you think you could pray for us before we, you know, go do this? And, and uh, well, it was just a great story. Uh, but, uh, so Gideon, you know, and, and how about you? How do you see yourself, and how does God see you? And who do you believe more? Because I think we got a lot of Christians who see themselves as pretty wimpy who see themselves as Gideon-ish, right? And the Lord comes and says, oh, mighty man of valor, and God sees something different in you. And you have to decide. You have to decide, who do I trust? Do I trust what God is saying? Or do I trust my own assessment? Do I do what's right in my own eyes? You know, or do I allow God to uh, reset my life? Oh, mighty man of valor. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know, I think Gideon sees himself as pretty pathetic. But God doesn't see him that way at all. You know what? God sees him with God in his life. Gideon just sees him by himself. But God sees him with God in his life. And uh, you know, God comes to him, sees a mighty man of valor, of strength and bravery and so forth. And uh, these two opinions are worlds apart. Gideon's idea of himself and God's idea of Gideon, and he has to decide, who am I going to believe? Well, look at uh, Gideon's response, and this is classic, right? This is just like us. Verse 13, Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, who, by the way, I think is actually Jesus pre-incarnate, because a couple verses down, you'll see. Uh, Verse 13, Gideon says to him, please, sir, he's very respectful, but if the Lord is with us, why... Are we living like this? If the Lord is really with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring you up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, given up on us, given us into the hand of Midian. You ever say something like that? You know? That's Gideon's response to the angel saying, hey, mighty man of valor. You know, you come to church, right? And the preacher says uh, something like this. He says, you're a daughter or a son of the living God. You are highly favored. You are incredibly blessed. You are rich beyond description. Mansion is being built for you in heaven. And you're sitting there saying to yourself, well, preacher, if that's all true, then why is my life like this? Why is it that I can barely get out of bed? Why is it that I'm getting divorced? Why is it that I'm so sick? Why am I so broke? Uh, Why is there so much disaster in my life? Why do my parents hate me? You know, and on and on and on. And the prophet, remember, had already said, listen, the problem is in the rebellion of your people. The problem is not that God doesn't love you. But the problem is in the rebellion. It's the insistence on doing what's right in your own eyes instead of in God's eyes. It's because of faltering faith. And so the next verse, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him, turns to Gideon, and says, 
See, it says the Lord turned to him. First, it's the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, I think, is really the Lord. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. It's like God didn't even hear him because God saw him different than he saw himself. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Stop whining and do something about it. You go deliver the people from the hand of Midian. I'm sending you. It's me that's sending you. Right? And, uh, you know, Gideon, you know, uh, he does what we all do. He responds like this, verse 15. And Gideon said to the Lord, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I fight some enemy? Who am I to be able to do something like that? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. I'm just, to borrow a word from Donald Trump, I'm just a lightweight. I'm just a lightweight. I'm a nobody. I'm broke. I'm from a crappy family. I'm the littlest tribe, you know, and all the rest of it. And, And he's got all the excuses as to why the Lord can't send him to deliver the people from the enemies. You know what? Gideon is looking at himself through his own eyes, not by faith. And in Gideon's eyes, he was weak and he was unqualified. And the Lord says to him, and in the next verse, in verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I'll be with you. But I'll be with you. It really doesn't matter who you are, Gideon. You and me together, we can get rid of the Midianites. No sweat. You ever feel like God's saying something like that to you? Look, stop with the excuses. Stop with all the whining about why it is you can't do what God's asking you to do. And hear God say to you, I'll be with you. You go for it, I'll be with you. You trust me. I'm not ever going to call you to do something that you can't do. I will be with you. And uh, when you think about this, it's the exact same thing that um, God said to Joshua when when. God asked Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. Uh, Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And is that not the exact same promise that God made to you and me when he said, go into the world, make some disciples, I will be with you till the ends of the earth. I'll be with you. I will never leave you, never forsake you. Go make some disciples. Isn't it the same thing? It's not about who we are. It's about who God is. I will be with you, he promised. The Lord promised, if you will attempt something for me, if you will go against an enemy for me, if you will allow me to call you into service, to fight back the world in which we live, the culture in which we exist, and the enemies that are so much against us, I will be with you. So think, what's your enemy? What makes you uptight? What bothers you? What what causes you to be reduced to nothing and just survive because you feel like you can't do anything about it? What enemy has God called you to fight against? Is it ignorance? Do you hate it when young people are raised in our school system and they grow up ignorant of the truth of God? Does it bother you enough to sign up, to do something about it? 
What bothers you? What enemy, you know, comes against you that you really... Is it disease? Is it immorality? Is it the souls of young people? Uh, is it depression and anxiety? Uh, what is it that really bothers you that it's in the world today? It's an enemy of ours. And are you willing to sign up? And do you sense it as a call? Come on, Gideon. You and I together will get rid of the Midianites. We'll restore the people to the life that I created them for. Uh, and so in verse 17, as we continue with Gideon, in verse 17, Gideon's not too sure, and he says to the Lord, he says, you know, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's really you who's speaking to me. You ever do that? You ever say, you know what, I want to believe that it's you. I want to believe that that still small voice is coming from God, but, you know, I'm just not sure that it's you. I mean, what if the enemy is setting me up to make me a failure? And so, can you give me a sign? And uh, so, you know, God gives him a sign. If you take the time, you read verse 18 to 24, the angel of the Lord, he says, like, you know, just sit tight, and, and I'm going to go, Gideon says, I'm going to go get a goat, and I'm going to go get some food, and I'm going to bring it to you, and he puts it out there on the rock, and, the, you know, the angel just touches it, and it all goes away, and the angel goes away, the Lord goes away. And so it's like a sign for Gideon. Have you ever received a sign from the Lord? Do you ever get an answer to prayer that you just know? You just know. This isn't, this is the Lord. You ever get some money at the last minute? You know, you don't know how you're going to pay this bill or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, this unexpected money shows up. I can remember in college, <laughs> that happening. Uh, a sign from the Lord. You ever, you ever have a circumstance that happens and, and you say, I know this isn't a coincidence. I know it. I've been praying about this, and this has happened, and I know the Lord is behind this. It's a, it's a sign, and that's what Gideon, I just need to know, Lord, that it's, it's you. And so Gideon becomes convinced, and, he, uh, and so the Lord speaks again, and, and this is a little tough. Now the Lord's going to test uh, Gideon, verse 25. That night the Lord came to him and said, I want you to take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you have cut down. And so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it at night. Here's a test. You a family first believer or a God first believer? This is the test that God sent to Gideon. You have to decide whether your family or God is going to be first. Tear down the family altar, God says. Take your old man's bull and burn it on the altar. Because why? Because the whole family had gone over to worship Baal's. And here's Gideon. He's the least in his tribe. He's the least in his family. And God's like, I want you to take a public stand for me against your family. It's a test. It's a preparation for what God was really calling Gideon to do. Um, and I think, you know, uh, will you take a stand for God against your family? If you grow up in a family that's uh, worshiping other gods and doesn't know God and so forth, do we live a family first or a God first life? 
And uh, when your faith is, uh, when, you, when your family is wrong, are you willing to stand up to them? And I love that verse 27. He's a little afraid to do it during the day, so he does it at night, right? It's okay. He did it. And uh, sure enough, uh, you'll notice in uh, the next verse, verse 28, when the men of the town rose early the next morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The ashes beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash, the father, said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself. <laughs> because his altar has been broken down. And therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. Uh, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. It seems like dad all of a sudden got the message. It's pretty dumb to be worshiping something that you have to defend if the thing that claims to be God can't defend itself. And so he comes to his son's uh, rescue. But you'll notice here, uh, he, he realized how foolish it was. And so, but the big thing is that Gideon took a public stand against his family. And I would suggest to you that you can't really serve God. You can't really do what God has called you to do until you're right with God yourself. Until you're willing to uh, respond and listen to God yourself, until God is first in your own life. And so uh, the scripture says this was a test. This was a test. And uh, I hope, you know, that uh, when we think about Gideon and the lessons that we learn for, from him as a mentor for us and how to grow faith, there comes a point usually where your faith is tested against your family. And you have to take a stand for what's right or for what's godly. Uh, for the realities of God. And at that point, it's a test uh, to see whether or not God is really first in our life. And so, um, so Gideon pass, passes the test, and um, <laughs> it doesn't take long. Verse 33, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan, and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet... And uh, all of a sudden, the trumpet was a call to war. And so Gideon blows the trumpet. We're now finally at the place where the rubber meets the road, right? Uh, now all of a sudden, the Midianites are back. They're all camped out. They're like locusts. There's bazillions of them. In fact, uh, chapter 8 says there's 135,000 of these Midianites who are camped down in the valley, okay? 135,000. And so uh, Gideon, like he's passed the test, is ready to go. And so he blows the trumpet and all these people come from all these different tribes of Israel. You know, the trumpet just sounds. They didn't have um, cell phones in those days. So, you know, the trumpet went from one trumpet to the next trumpet to the next trumpet. So all over the land, the trumpet's going and the people are coming and so forth. And um, you, you can read it there. And, uh, and now he's got like 32,000 people are all gathered together from Israel, right, to fight against the Midianites. Gideon sounded the trumpet, the call to war. And then Gideon gets cold feet, right? Verse 36, Gideon says to God, uh, look, if, if you're really going to save Israel by my hand, like you've said, I'm going to lay out a fleece of wool on the thrashing floor, 
And uh, if there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, then I will know that you're going to save Israel by my hand, as you say. Poor old Gideon. He just doesn't believe it that he could do something significant for God. He just doesn't believe it. So he puts out a fleece. This is where the saying comes from, right? Puts out a fleece. And uh, if the dew is on it in the morning and it's dry around the ground, then I'll believe you. And... Verse 38, it was so, and when he rose early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. All right, Gideon, he's good to go, right? No, verse 39, then Gideon says to God, look, please don't get mad at me. Don't let your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. Let's just do the opposite tonight. And God did it so that night, and it was dry on the fleece, and all the ground was full of dew, and so forth. Poor Gideon. He just couldn't believe it, that he was going to do this. He's got all these people now. He blew the trumpet and so on, and uh, it gets better, right? In, in, in um, chapter 7, then uh, Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early, and they encamped beside the spring of Herod, and uh, the camp of Midian was north of them uh, by the hill of Moriah in the, in the valley. And the Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many. 32,000 against 135,000, there's too many of you, right? God says, look, you got too many resources. You people here in Fairfield County, you got too much resources, you got too many people, he says. The Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand because here's what's going to happen. Israel is going to boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. If you have all these resources, you know what's going to happen. You're going to win and I'm going to do it, but you're going to take the credit. And I want you to take the credit. I want you to know who I am, God. You know? And so uh, what does he say? He says, now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him go home. 22,000 turn around and go home. It's like a preacher in the summer. I mean, that's two-thirds of the guy's army. If you're afraid, you can go home. Gone. 22,000, just take off. Glad I don't have to be involved. Glad God's not calling me. I'd just rather be fearful. You know, fear and faith are opposites. Fear and faith. Fear comes from focusing on the enemy. Faith comes from focusing on God. Fear and faith are always opposites, right? 22,000 of these guys just take off, it says here. Um, Then 22,000 of the people returned, 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, verse 4, the people are still too many. I think Gideon's shocked now. I think he's really shaking in his boots, right? He says, um, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'm going to test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall uh, go with you, shall go with you. And anybody of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. Uh, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, uh, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying when you bring the people to the water, if they kneel down and they start just drinking the water like a dog, you know, and they don't have their eyes around, like seeing where the enemy might be and so forth. They're all just, you know, down here looking at their face in the reflection of the water and, and, and drinking and happy. And he says, you know what, we don't need them. They're not alert. They're oblivious to what's going on. You got 135,000 enemies around you, and you're just like drinking water. You just want to be comfortable. They can all go home. You got 300 people who reach down, grabs a cup of water, and drink like this and lap it up from their hands because they're watching. And there's 300 of them left, from 32,000 down to 300. And uh, that's, you know, look what he says. So he brought the people down to the water. There's 300 men, the rest. Uh, knelt down and so forth. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other ones go home. Go to your house. Take a hike. We'd rather have 300 committed people than 32,000 scaredy cats. We'd rather have 300 people who are committed than 32,000 who are scared. Right? And so God says, look, with the 300, we're going to do this. Now, if you're Gideon, you're like, this is making less sense by the minute. Right? This is not adding up. This is like crazy. This is like a suicide mission. Oh, God, you're setting me up to take me down. You know? 300 guys against um, 135,000. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and uh, he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So here you've got 135,000 people camped out in the valley, and Gideon's going to take these 300 men, he's going to make three uh, divisions, if you will, and he's going to surround them on the mountain, right? They're down in the valley, he's going to surround them on the mountain, and um, the same night the Lord says to him, now I love this because the Lord knows Gideon, he knows his heart, and the Lord says to Gideon, I want you to go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pua, your servant, and you shall hear what they're saying. All right? So Gideon's still afraid. So he goes down to the camp to hear what the people are saying, and he hears from the voice of the enemy. He went down to the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels without number and uh, like the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given him into the hand of Midian and all the camp. Don't you love it when you hear something that affirms your faith from the enemy? When you hear the enemy say something dumb, or you hear the enemy, you know, the unbeliever say something that just affirms for you so much about the truth of who God is, and so, well, that's what happened to Gideon. So, Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He knew it was God. It's one of those coincident things, you know. No, this is God. 
Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided his 300 men into three companies, put trumpets in their hands, and all of them had empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Just do what I do. So these are the weapons of warfare, a trumpet, a pitcher, and a, and a torch, right? And they're going to go against 135,000 people. And, of course, if you know the story, uh, they do. And uh, the trumpet, the pitcher, the torch, they surround uh, the, the valley, and uh, they blow the trumpets, they break the pitchers, they shine the lights, and they shout, right? And you know what happens, right? All the people in of Midian is, are so afraid, they don't know what's going on, they feel like they're surrounded, they don't know who's who, it's dark out, right? They start killing each other, and they start running, Right? Uh, because they don't know like who the enemy really is and so forth. And I, I love this. In verse uh, 21 of chapter 7, check this out now. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army of the Midianites ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. What did the people of God do, the 300 people? They stood still. They just stood there. They just stood still in their faith. And God caused this huge victory to come as the enemy took each other out. And all the people of God did was stand still. Break the picture, show the light, shout. The sword of the Lord, the sword of Gideon, they shout out. And uh, everybody freaks out. And there's this great victory. Chapter 8, verse 10 tells about it, you know. Um, the army of uh, about 15,000 men, uh, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. 120,000 to 135. There's only 15,000 people left after this uh, incident happened. And uh, it's kind of a, a great victory. And you know there's no question that God did it. So verse 28, Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. They raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years all the days of Gideon. The land had rest. So again, this is one of these cycles, right? Uh, and um, and the, the land has rest. And then uh, what happens, uh, you know, we have this thing about hero worship. Everybody wants to make Gideon, you know, the king. And uh, Gideon refuses because we always want... You know, they wanted to give Gideon the credit, and Gideon did, I think, make a mistake. He made an epod, and people uh, came to the wrong place to worship and all of that. You can uh, read that there. But look at this. In chapter 8 and uh, at the very end, in verse uh, 33, 32, Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. Uh, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned against and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they didn't show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done. How quick we forget. How quick we forget. How good God is. And how quick we want to do what's right in our own eyes. How sad. This cycle just repeats itself in the book of Judges. Seven times specifically, it's all spelled out. Well, okay, so 
if Gideon is going to be our mentor in the faith, what do we take away today about our faith? How do we grow our faith? Remember, we're talking about if faith is so important. How do we grow our faith? And we're looking at these guys that God gives us as mentors. So what is it that we take away? Number one, it seems to me that I learn that if I'm going to live by faith, I have to view myself, my self-image, on the basis of what God tells me is true about me, not what I think, not what my parents said, not what my boss says, not what my friends say, but on the basis of what God says to me, I will create a self-identity. If I'm going to live by faith, I have to believe that what God tells me about me is true. And I have to begin to create a self-image, right, that's based on what God has Oh, mighty man of valor. No, I'm just this wimpy little trying to survive guy. No. What does God say is true about you, and will you choose to believe it? If you're going to live by faith, my mentor teaches me that I've really got to do that. Second, I learned that my faith has to take priority over my family. I know family is a great value, and we're all committed to family, and, and, and the scriptures encourage us. Uh, but when family and God conflict, we have to choose God first. And uh, if we're going to be people of faith, we can't allow our families uh, to drag us away from that. Instead, we have to bring that faith into our family. And then we saw, like in Gideon, where eventually his father uh, actually even came around. And then finally, uh, I would say a lesson that I learned about uh, faith from Mentor Gideon is that when God is asking you to do something, the odds don't matter. When God is asking you to do something, if God is in it and God is calling you to fight this enemy, the odds don't matter because God wants to get the glory for himself. He wants the world to understand how much he is really for his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you give us these people to mentor us in our faith. Such a simple story. We look back and it goes way back, a thousand years before Jesus, 3,000 years ago this is going on. And yet the principles are so relevant, Father, right up to today. And so I thank you for Gideon. I thank you, Father, for uh, kind of exposing him in the scriptures in the way that you do so that we can identify with him. We understand him. We, too, have times when we feel like all we can do is just barely survive. And uh, if we open up our uh, ears to you, uh, we sang, open the eyes of my heart. Uh, if we open up our hearts, if we see, Father, what you see, and we yield to you and we do what's right in your eyes, not our eyes, uh, what a difference uh, in the way that you can use us. And so help us to be people of faith. Help us not to forget the lessons from Gideon. And help us, Father, to implement them even this week for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We're going to ask our